seven. Woo woo! Interdisciplinary Heal Wells Healthcare Podcast, where we like to say the quiet parts loud and lift people up and bring the justice and the love and all the things. We are here with an exciting guest this week. I know sometimes you're just stuck with the Heal Well Brain Trust, but today we have an exciting guest and uh, we will allow her to introduce herself very shortly. But before we get any further, I wanted you guys to know that right before I logged in here, somebody tried to call and sell me a coffin. And I was like, that is the last thing I need. Oh, dear. Really? <laughs> Coffin jokes. That's where we're going to start. That's Oh, yeah. That's that's where okay. we're going to start. I see. I see where this is going. <laughs> well, well, my clearly that is our guest, Jennifer O'Brien, weighing in with the appropriate loathe and appreciation for the bad pun. <laughs> uh, so we'll roll right into uh, Jennifer introducing herself. We're so excited that you're here with us today. Oh my goodness, it's my pleasure. And what an appropriate pun to start with. Because, I tried to go with, with the team. <laughs> because yeah, so I'm Jen O'Brien and I have, um, I spent the bulk of my life teaching physicians um, the business and leadership side of their practices. And then I met this amazing man who was himself a physician, a palliative care and hospice doctor. We fell crazy in love and had this wonder, wonderful life. And then he got cancer and lived for 22 months um, following the diagnosis. And I kept an art journal while I was taking care of him. And for about a year and a half after he died and at which point I shared it with one of the, I was, you know, still working with doctors and I shared it with one of the doctors I was working with. Um, and he basically took it from me and didn't give it back to me because he, <laughs> because he wanted to loan it to these um, three patients that he had that he was diagnosing with ALS, which is a terminal diagnosis. And, um, and said, you know, Jennifer, you need to get that published because that helps close a gap between what I can do for the patient as the, what, as what I as the specialist can do for the patient and what the family caregiver really needs. And so that was really compelling. And I indeed went to work on finding a small press, a small local press. I'm in Little Rock, Arkansas, and they took a chance on the book and it was published as The Hospice Doctor's Widow, a journal. And so now I spend most of my time, and we're back around to the coffin, um, <laughs> encouraging um, people to have open conversation about end of life, um, ideally long before anybody gets sick. Um, but certainly, certainly after people get sick, it's time to start balancing hope and preparation. Um, and I advocate for family caregivers because it is it, it, it is just the unsung you know core of our sort of society and economy at this point, at least in the US. So yeah, so um, and it's a really hard job um, that is also incredibly fulfilling. Uh, so yeah, I love the family caregivers. I have a special place in my heart for them. So that's who I am. Well, that's a tiny part of who you are, but yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, true. it's funny because I, I, I told you, Jen, that so Jen and I, Air Bunnies, met uh, because we were each uh, one guest on a like four guest podcast where they sort of put the things together. And so we both sort of learned about each other by listening to this podcast episode that we were on uh, that is 
my metastatic breast cancer life, my NBC life uh, was the podcast. And, uh, and I reached out to Jen because I just, after I heard her on the podcast, I also started stalking her on Instagram and um, <laughs> just really liked uh, the stuff that she was sharing about, you know, the places where death shows up that we don't think about. And I, when I heard about the book, even hearing Jen talk about it on the podcast, I told her that after, after I read it, I was like, I read it because I had to, I feel like, because, you know, we were going to have her on the podcast, but I, as you may know, I'm a little cranky in general and um, really sort of hate hope. Um, uh, (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. um, At least traditional hope. Hope is all about bright siding, whatever. And I, even having met you, Jen, and heard you talk about it, I'm like, this is going to be this book all about like, you know, look out the window and blah, 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 and see the birds and it's all going to be fine. And when I, when I read it, I was like, oh, damn, I'm going to have to like this book and even buy it for people. Um, (laughs) Because it's, it's not that it's a very pragmatic sort of like, as much as you can peek into someone else's experience of, of grief and loss and the process of walking with Bob to the end of his life, that that's what you did. And, and I was like, oh, yeah that's, this is, this is a resource that I can now excitedly share with people. And, and it's not like the box of tissues, like you can stop crying now. This is the thing. It's like, no, you can go into how deep and hard and whatever this all is. So, um, yeah, so I, I'm really excited to have come across it. I don't know how in my end of life travels, I had not heard of it before, but I'm really glad that, uh, NBC life brought us together. So yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, Corey, you always have questions. I mean, I have so many questions, but I feel oh, like- questions. Um, I wanted to say that, so I read, um, some excerpts and they were absolutely not what I thought they were going to be at all as well. Um, uh, I would like to say that it is the box of tissues that tells you to keep crying, like, yes. but like, you I might not want to get it on your shirt. So here's a box of tissues. <laughs> um, cause you might have to go somewhere in like 25 minutes. <laughs> right. <laughs> like it's those tissues. Um, I was most surprised by, uh, the level of art that is involved, um, in this whole thing. I, um, do graphic design things and I'm obsessed with the visual, um, in many, many forms and particularly as a teaching tool for people. I think that, um, forcing people and for us massage therapists, especially to just read gobs and gobs of words in lines that are black and white. Like it just doesn't really doesn't work for everybody. And I honestly, I think it really doesn't work for a lot of people. Um, so to incorporate that much, um, that many layers of visual opportunity was very cool. Uh, and I haven't seen anything like that in a really long time um, that wasn't in a museum pasted on a wall for the most part. Or um, you're my new best friend. <laughs> and I like museums, don't get me wrong, I do, but like they cost about 40 bucks to enter and you can't take it with you. So um, so this was uh, very, very different. I absolutely encourage everybody to um, at least go check out some of it and see the totally different experience you will have with, I guess we can call it a book, but not really so much a book as an experience. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. I so I, I, I would like to know, like, how, how did that, was it organic? Like, were you just like, this is the picture I feel today. Here you go. Put some words with it. Like, how oh, did that come yeah, together? Well, so it was totally 
organic. I started it right when Bob got the diagnosis. I am a self-taught artist. I started with analog collage many, many years ago, and I can't really paint or draw, so that's why we go to collage. Um, and then when Bob got sick, I started the journal, but I started it in, in digital collage. So I was teaching myself how to do it through uh, using Adobe Photoshop. And um, yes, the pages, um, the art came about. It, I, I felt like these were um, collages that conveyed the feeling or the message or the concept that I wanted that, you know, that I had to convey in that moment, like, or that day or whatever. So like, as an example, um, one of the pages that's early in the book, page three, it's called Precious Time. And it's a concept that Bob used to share with, with patients, he would tell, and families, he would tell them, you're into precious time, meaning this doesn't go on forever. And you need to say what you need to say, and you need to not say what you'll later regret. Um, and it was such a wonderful concept because it was understood, you know, that's, those are easy words, right? That, that everybody, and then the way he would put them together and he would sort of put the emphasis on the word precious. So it was like, it's a type of time, not who time is precious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But precious time is totally different than time is precious. Anyway, in trying to sort of convey that message, I pulled together um, lots of clocks and clock parts, old clock parts, and um, and and then I used <laughs> a photo of my grandmother when she was a little girl, and it's it's just precious. I mean, it's just a you know, it's a precious little. So anyway, it was that kind of thing. Some of it's not terribly sophisticated, Corey, but it you know, it, it's a, it, a little embarrassing to tell someone who is a who is indeed a graphic artist. But but that but that's what it was. It was it was totally organic. It was coming up with okay, how, and it was a lot a weird combination, right, of head work and heart work because. Here I wanted to convey what was very much in, in my heart, um, whatever that was, but I had to make Adobe Photoshop do what I wanted it to do, which as a novice kind of stumbling along through the whole thing was quite frustrating <laughs> at times. So it was kind of a good balance that way because you don't want to get all too blubbery about the whole thing, right? So you got to throw in a couple of four letter words there when you're trying to make the thing do it, do it right. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's how it came up about. And then there were notes that really, in my mind, did not lend themselves to a lot of art. Um, so I just would take like a, you know, a, a page, a photo of a page and, and, and put my note on top of it kind of thing. Um, so, so not every page is rich with art, but um, as a whole, yeah, I think it's a, it's an experience. Um, I will say, so uh, my graphic design stuff is all self-taught um, oh, and I spend a lot of time staring at the image and being like, it's wrong. Why is it wrong? I'm not sure why it's wrong. How do I fix it? Oh, yeah. Um, I, 
commend your Photoshop um, using Adobe products as sort of like driving a race car without ever having driven a race car ever before. And it can do all of these things and you have no idea what they are. And it's actually going to take you like six times longer to do the thing to start with because you have no idea where the buttons are. So um, kudos. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Uh, So for everybody listening, if you want to make art, like just just make it. Make it and make sure there's nobody standing behind you watching you fumble around in Photoshop. But otherwise, you know. Yes, definitely. People, you know, I've got, I've gotten all this encouragement since the book came out and since I've whatever been working on this whole branding thing, you know, my brand and, and people are like, why don't you teach a, why don't you teach a class on, you know, making the art? And I'm like, are you kidding me? That would be an (laughs) utter disaster for me and for anybody taking the class. It would just, it would be a joke. I mean, I've, I've shown people when I, when I do an author talk, sometimes we start out with the art, with a, you know, a slide series that shows the layers, because most people, especially in the sort of lay person population, they're all worried that, that my author talk will be sad. Um, And so we all, if we can start out with a series of slides that show how I make the art, oh, that's, that's, that's okay for everybody. People can (laughs) feel safe. then we can go into the real world. Um, So yeah, (laughs) so that's the launching off place, but, but I would never, I would never try to teach anybody how to, how to do Photoshop. Well, and not to be that guy, but you would never teach somebody how to grieve either, right? Like, I think that's what's so great about this book is like, and you guys sort of nerding out about the art sort of pointed out to me that as I was reading, when I got to the pages where, where like, you know, there was the, the email updates about what was going on with Bob, like I read them, but I was like, oh, let me get through this page with all the words. Cause I want to see the pictures. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you know, Cal, I think that's one of the things that's, that's been um, very successful about the book is when you get to the point where a person you love is very ill and you need to take care of them, you just don't have capacity for a chapter book. I mean, there are a lot of outstanding chapter books on end of life, um, but they really are best read when everyone is very healthy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, I I mean, the, that's the sad irony of it. I wish people would read all those books when everyone's healthy. And then when someone gets sick, then a book like mine comes into play because it's, you can open it up. You can look at one or two pages, get something out of it and put it away for a while. You can hold it. You know, that's really important to me. The publisher has, you know, been toying with the idea of making it a paperback or, somehow trying to make it an ebook and none of those things are really in its future. If I have anything to say about it, because it is a book that needs to be held and it is targeted at people who need something to hold on to. So it works out really well that way. Definitely. Yeah. I think one of my favorite end of life books is the grace and dying by Kathleen Dowling Singh. And in the very beginning of it, she says, if you or someone you love is dying right now, put this book down you are safe. You do not need this book. And it's like the best advice ever, because it's true. You're, you're not going to learn from a book how to do this. And your book doesn't try to teach people how to do it. It just says like, this is like, and I love the, I love the, the page with the garbage can where, you know, it just says like, today is the first garbage day since I found out my husband is dying from cancer. And it's like, right. Those are the thoughts that you have, you know, that is, this is now how I look at the world. Like, 
this many minutes have passed since everything changed. And you're not crazy for thinking that. And that is the, that if that's your experience, congratulations, <laughs> you right. know, you're, you're paying attention. And this is a, a really normal and I guess healthy air bunnies way to be recognizing that your world has definitely changed. Right. And it'll never be the same again. Yeah. Even if you get, even if your husband or your person gets cured, right. It's still never going to be the same again. Don't, yes. don't kid yourself. You are, you are a different person. Um, and since we're on that topic, even if your person or you become cured of some awful disease, stay with me here at the end of your life, you will still die. Okay. Yeah. It's like, oh. <laughs> it's just a fact. It's just a fact. Yes. Well, and you know, there's a, there's a thing that we do in some of our end of life classes. We, we review the, um, the nine contemplations of Atisha. And one of the contemplations is the time of your death is uncertain. And in the, in the meditation about it, it says like, and even if you've been diagnosed with a terminal illness, it may not be the cause of your death, right? You might get hit by a truck. You might get, you know, something else you choke on a sandwich. Like, <laughs> you know, we all have these stories about, Oh, you are at the end of your life, but me, I'm right. Right. Somehow <laughs> I'm going on. Yes. Right. Oh. Right. Yeah. Um, I really love the, um, I mean, there's so many of like the pages, like, I mean, I love the thing about how Bob used to make the pour over coffee and you're yeah. like, don't want that. But like, you know, a year later you're like, so turns out I make my own coffee now. And yes. you know, that came back, but like in the beginning, I didn't even want it. Like, I just didn't even have the, anything about making that happen. And, no. um, but and I people, think people kept saying, you know, I can teach you how to make the coffee. And it was like, no, no, no you don't understand. I can figure out how to make the damn coffee. It's not right, that. Right. It's, I, want I can them. read. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. There's YouTube. There's all sorts of tools that I can use to learn how to make this coffee. But no, that's not it. No, it's the will to make the coffee that I'm missing. Right. That's you right. can't give me that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. The caffeine tablets will cover me for now. <laughs> That's right. I can drink monster energy drink. That's not the point. Yeah. Right. Um, the thing that pulled me in in your Instagram was the, the ways that um, I think the one that really got me was uh, you were talking about, I think it was about like, not bank tellers, uh, like the person at the gas company that when, when as a widow or as a widower, you call the gas company to say like my so-and-so died and I have to change this. Like that should stop being a perfunctory relationship in that moment. Like as the operator at the gas company, you need to, your humanity needs to show up to that. And you need to like, just, just be more gentle. You don't have to be a counselor, but please recognize what this call is about. Well, what's crazy is, you know, that, that was, that was a post that, um, you know, by my little by my small world terms went well it got a lot of engagement we won't use the word viral because it certainly wasn't viral but it got a ton of engagement especially in a couple of widows groups that i'm in and the number of people who told a story to me after that about about when they'd say i'm calling to cancel let's say my husband's phone because he died well, I'm going to need to talk to the holder of the account. Okay. I just told you 
you can't listen. If you can talk to the holder of the account, would I would love that tell too. Him to call me because <laughs> right, like right, right. I just told you that he died. So and just and, and going no, but I really need to talk to the holder of the account. Are are you kidding me? What what do you not understand about the guy died and and the whole thing, the notion that these companies have not figured out. But what, you know, what's the, if then, if the, if the person, if the caller says the person with the, holding the account died, go to these training instructions, right? Like go to this other yeah. menu or this other script for crying out loud, you know, right. it's, it's insane. Well, and I, I think I, I'm happy for you to tell me like, this is completely unrelated, but I feel like it points to this idea that we think we can exist in spaces where death doesn't show up. Oh, and so totally. like, if I'm just an operator at the gas company or at Verizon, I shouldn't have to, I'm yeah. safe, right? And and that there is this idea that like, why would we do extra training for people to be kind? <laughs> I think and, it's weirder that like Verizon, the company doesn't think that they're going to have to deal with it. Like, yeah, right. I can right. see one operator being like, well, you know, I'm, it's a temporary job. I'm not going to be here that long. Like, but the entire company. Yeah. Right. Ever. Yeah. No, that, and in fact, on that post, I had in the text, I had suggested, Hey, let's, let's call out the companies that we had trouble with. Yeah. And, and see if we can get a response. And one did one cable company from the UK responded and said, we need to do better on this. You know, I'm, we hear you and you know, who knows if they will, I, yeah. I, I hope they will, but yeah. at least they responded. Nobody else, um, nobody else responded and said, oh my gosh, this is a real problem. It's been a pandemic. Like a bunch of people have died and yet yeah, right. a bunch right. of accounts are, are canceled because of people dying and you still can't figure out. But I think you're right, Cal. I, I, I think it has to do with, um, yes, our, our, our culture's um, issue and aversion to just the topic of death. And that if we just, if we just, like going back to your, your earlier comment about what you were expecting from the book, if we just look out the window and feel some sense of hope, then that, all that death stuff will go away. Yeah. Oh yeah. Let's just do that. Yeah. Yeah. Corey, I'm, <laughs> your face is making me laugh. <laughs> I, so I feel the same way about this as I do about um, disability stuff, right? When everyone's like, oh, well, it's not going to affect me and it's not a problem. I'm not going to worry about it. And it's going to be fine. And I'll just, it'll be fine. And it's like, no, someday not going to be able to get up those stairs or someday walking to the grocery store is real going to suck. Like yeah. it's going to happen to you too. But instead of doing something about it, this thing that everybody is going to experience, we just pretend. Kick it down the road. Kick the can yeah, it'll down be fine. the road. It'll be yeah. fine. Yeah, oh, I don't need to fix those sidewalk cracks. 100%. I, I, have this, I have this master bathroom that I'm working very much toward getting it completely redone because I think it should be um, interior design malpractice to use marble on the floor of a bathroom. Okay, mm -hmm. that's a hip fracture waiting to happen. Ooh, yeah. And, and that now that... We understand that curbs for showers are unnecessary. 
then they need to go away. We need to build no more bathrooms because I had a night about a few nights before Bob died. It was less than a week before he died. He was still at home. And it's a long story that's not worth going into, but he managed to get himself into the shower, despite the fact that he was not ambulating very well. And I discovered he was in there and got in with him fully dressed because if I didn't, he was going to fall over in the shower and bleed out. And I, um, I held him up and washed him and we got finished and I couldn't get him over the curb. I was like, okay, okay, we're both going to die in this shower now because I can't hold him up much longer and I cannot, it's one step and I cannot get him over it. And I, you know, by the grace of God, I, I had had the good sense to put the walker that had a bench, right? And I, I managed to basically dump him into the walker and then roll him over to the bed and dump him into the bed because, and part of that was, well, it was a lot of stuff, but like, why do we even make showers like that anymore? Now that we know, right, that a, that a step, I remember when my, uh, about a year after Bob died, one of my very best friends got diagnosed with a really aggressive bladder cancer. And when we first got the news, I went down, he was lived in New Orleans. I went down there and I was looking around his place and I was like, um, yeah, like thing, you know, he was, he was very matter of fact, like we were, we were, we were both that way. So I said, you know, those, there's two steps up into the, to the um, dining area. And like, that will be impossible to do in the not too distant future. Yeah. And he's kind of shrugging and going, well, I'll just put a ramp. And I'm like, I mean, seriously, you think the ramp is going to be that much better? Like, I mean, anyway, it, I didn't say that, of course, because there's no point in, at that point. And sure enough, you know, he got very quickly where he would, he could, I mean, it might as well be Mount Everest at right. that point. Right. Um, and people really, really don't think that that is ever going to happen to them. And it's insane. It's insane that they think it's never going to happen. Oh, no, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And you plan for it. And you, and then, and the other thing is, you know, we were lucky enough that we had time to, we had a big, we lived in a big old house and Bob knew that I was not going to do well in a big old house by myself. Um, so we bought the condominium that I'm in now, and that's why we inherited that bathroom and someday I will change it, but it's all, this condo is all on one level and, um, and it's just, you know, it's just manageable. Um, there's not, there's not a big staircase like there was in our house and all that sort of stuff. And, but honestly, you know, the time to do that, I mean, we were lucky we could, we could do it and we could afford to do it. Meaning I had the time to help with that while Bob worked and all that sort of stuff. But really you, sh you need to start thinking about that a lot earlier in your life than you think you do. Um, because once you get to the injury, I mean, I don't have to tell you all your, you know, massage therapists, but once you get the injury, oh, no. don't, don't do that. <laughs> There's massage therapists are people. I think that the tiny niche of us who work with people who realize they have less time than they thought they had or less mobile than they thought they'd be. I think we sort of get it, but I think healthcare providers are. No, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Good call. Yes. Yeah. Oh, you're right. Because there's plenty of physicians. 
Yes. Orthopedic surgeons, which I've worked plenty with who are just like, like, are are you kidding me? Like, how are we supposed to get the patients up here? You know? Um, So yes, you're right. But the, but the point is it, it better to do it all while everyone is still able, you know, to participate than to have to scramble and do it after someone is ill or injured or whatever. Yeah. Well, you know, we have, we are really lucky uh, to have made good friends and colleagues of some folks who are really doing some important advocacy work in the disability space in the last couple of years. And it's really, I, I think I'm like most people who are not yet disabled. It hadn't really occurred to me until I started to engage with people who live in wheelchairs, who you know, have to be careful how far they move their joints doing basic activities of daily living and things like that. That I was like, so wait, why isn't the world just built for where we're all headed? Like, why do we have to like, why did it take 30 years to get curb cuts? That like the, the world should be designed for the truth of our debility. That, you know, one of, one of my favorite guests that we had on Ian Wadlington um, is, uh, he calls himself the triple threat because he, um, he has cerebral palsy, he's gay and he's left-handed. Um, and he, <laughs> he said, you know, within sort of his closing thought in the episode where we had him on, he said, what I want people to know is that, or what I want people to do is to really think of ability on a continuum and that all of us, if we live to some age and really doesn't even have to be old age, um, we will be less and less able. And to think that people with disabilities, which still is a huge swath of our population, huge, um, are uniquely somehow like ill or things that will happen to me, right? They're other, yeah. Right. And that, you know, like I was, I was watching a person in a wheelchair the other day, I was going past the, uh, a crosswalk it, right here where I live and I saw them struggling to reach the button. And I was thinking like, there's gotta be a way to like, create a thing that would be really easy to access. But I thought, you know, I'm sure the able-bodied decision makers would be like, yeah, but how many people in a wheelchair are gonna have to cross at this crosswalk, right? So do we really wanna, you know, whatever? And it's like, no, lots of them will. And probably people are avoiding certain places because they know they won't have access so they won't be able to do the things. Um, and so- besides, what what harm does it do those of us who are not in a wheelchair? I mean- right. Yeah, I- and if I have to bend down, to yeah. push the crosswalk button, I can do that. I'm lucky that I can do that. Yeah. But some people so, some people can't though. So maybe the solution is just to have two buttons. What? Yeah. <laughs> like Jump I know, I know it's twice as expensive, but yeah. We could well, probably handle it. And it it points to, I mean, we could just rail about all the things that are wrong with our world, right? But yeah. like yeah. showers have to be pretty, right? And pretty doesn't include a chair in your shower or, you know, no lip or whatever it is. Like people could design things that are prepared. Oh to my gosh. I've been in some, you know, the, the place that learned about showers early on was Scottsdale, Arizona. I have some friends that build houses in Scottsdale, Arizona and right. Those a lot of folks retiring out there and uh, for whom a curb is insurmountable yeah. and um beautiful showers in Scottsdale like it, it is it, it it's not uh the two are not mutually exclusive I yeah. mean absolutely stunning yes um yes yeah um and you know what's stunning not breaking your hip 
Yes, that is stunning. That is stunning. Not breaking your hip is stunning. Yep. Yep. Um, One of the things you and I talked about, Jen, when we had our sort of live conversation was um, the the bill of goods that providers are sold about the danger of vulnerability in how they interact with people and sort of like, and certainly depending on the specialty, it's more or less dangerous to be vulnerable. Um, So I don't have a question. I just want you to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I'm happy to talk about that because I do have 35 years working with physicians and for the first I don't know, 30 of them. It was mostly surgical specialists. And um, I think those gals and guys are particularly, um, you know, hardcore. They, they, they don't feel like they can show their vulnerability. And, and there is a certain, and then being married to, you know, before Bob was a, was a palliative care physician, he was a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. So um, he became palliative care when he had a neck injury that did not allow him to operate anymore. So he had that sort of surgeon's origin, um, but had worked very, very hard through therapy and through spiritual guidance and all sorts of other stuff to, to get to be a much, a much nicer, um, much more vulnerable um, in, in expressing his vulnerability um, person. And I think that was, that was one of the things that happened, but he, but I do think um, that, that there, yeah, there, there's a, there's a point when a, when a MV, when a um, motor vehicle accident, you know, patient comes into the ER and needs massive surgery or reconstruction or whatever, yes, there, there is a mode that they have to go into that is not vulnerability. It is like, get in there and fix that stuff. But I think what happens is they never, culturally, it's just not acceptable for them to then go home and cry, you know, about it to their spouse or to anyone. Um, and so that's where I think we run into lots of problems with, you know, where it's just not okay uh, culturally for a physician of any sort to, 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 to cry with a patient or to, you know, um, be themselves or be vulnerable. Um, and they just end up overly compartmentalizing and it's not healthy. Ultimately, I think Bob would totally agree with me on this, that it was years of therapy and hard work to, to become the person and the physician that he became. Um, I think he was always, he always had a side that really understood just what suffering was because he had done a lot of his own suffering from depression and some other things that simply, you know, weren't acceptable. Um, But yeah, it would be so much, it's so much more powerful when the person who has the intelligence to actually help you via medicines or procedures or whatever is able to marry that with, with true compassion, vulnerability, and understanding for what, what the situation really, really represents. Those are the doctors you love. I mean, the really, and the, and the care and the professional caregivers that really make a difference in people's lives. And when you're not, when you're stifling that, 
um, I, I really think is when you end up with nurse ratchet kind of scenarios that, that most of the time, that's not a bad person. That's just somebody who is having a heck of a time, you know, keeping it together. Air bunnies. Are they called air bunnies? Um, yes, keep, keeping it, keeping it together, um, while, while getting the task done and, um, and it's, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. And I also kind of think we're reaching a breaking point in healthcare with that, because especially when you consider what the last couple of years have been like, um, we, we just can't hold it that much longer on this whole, you have to be tough and you have to be hardcore and yet people are dying around you and other people are not willing to recognize, you know, the science and the contribution to those early um, and unnecessary deaths, you know, so, you know, there are those too. I mean, yes, we're going to die at the end of their, of our lives, but wouldn't it be nice if it was, you know, more in a warm bed and at a, at a ripe old age, having lived a full, relatively healthy life, you know, wow, that's, that's my goal, by the way. I just want to get to a certain age and go to bed one night and die of a heart attack. And um, yes. That's it. That, yes. yes. I've already put that out to the universe. I've Excellent. done my time with all the really difficult deaths. And I think that the universe owes me this. <laughs> solid. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Solid. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. In, a, in the community this month, our theme was boundaries. And um, we've done a lot of talking about um, how to make boundaries and what boundaries are and what they look like. And are you any good at them? And most of us are like, oh, sometimes, sometimes we're all right. right. I um, was going to answer that question by saying, no, I'm no, yeah, I'm no yeah, good at that. It depends on what, like, and there's yeah. things that I, you know, not so much. Um, and there's been some very good conversation. And then this, this last week of the month um, has been about caregiver boundaries and empathy um, and also crossing boundaries and doing it kind of on purpose. So there's a, um, a great article um, by a doctor named Gordon Schiff called Crossing Boundaries, Violation or Obligation. Ah, and he talks about, out. yes, it's real good. Um, he talks about uh, giving a patient $30 so they could buy their medication after watching her struggle for 25 minutes with the pharmacy and her bank. Um, and he just was like, here's the money buy the medication. I will see you at your next appointment. Yeah. Um, and he thought it was a totally normal and human thing to do and got in big trouble for it, um, with his administration. And he was like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, right. Well, right. you know, wow. it's, it's very interesting. Um, on the one hand, it, it's always interesting situ situations like that. Um, because I have been an administrator for many, uh, my, many years of my career off and on. And, um, I'm not sure I would, I'm not sure I would get anybody in trouble for that, but exploring that, that, situation represents a larger issue that we need to start exploring rather than um, just <clears throat> transactionally solving the problem in the moment. And there's an organization, Health Leads. I don't know if you're familiar with Health Leads, but this was started because a, I think it was a young woman who was maybe getting her master's in maybe in social work or something like that. And I want to say she was doing some sort of a, 
an internship or rotation. And I kind of want to say it was Mass General, but I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, she went to the physicians in the, in the clinic where she was working and she was like, what do you need? You know, what do you really, what is missing from, from your world in terms of how you care for patients and what you need? And they said, we need someone to bird dog things like how do we keep the power going if the patient doesn't have the money to pay the power bill, but they need right their oxygen or whatever, you know, they need the yeah. power. We all need right. our power. Right. right. And, and they, and they're only going to get worse if this happens. And she created health leads takes college students and places them in medical centers. And basically they research all these different resources that are available and they communicate both with physicians. And I think sometimes with patients, depending, I don't know if, if they communicate directly with patients, but creating a local, you know, um, database and set of information of resources that are available to people in various sets of circumstances. And I, I thought that, you know, that that's what that that's what that incident is getting at. Yes, it's the 30 bucks. I mean, as an administrator, I say the problem is I can't solve everybody's problem that way. Um, but, but the health leads, you know, again, getting your altitude up and looking at what's the larger issue here and where do we have resources that can help close these gaps? Um, yeah, no question. No question. And then there's just plain, you know, that when somebody, when as a CEO of a large practice, when somebody shows up my door and says, I'm having a problem, I need to talk to you, you know, shutting up and listening to what the problem is, because I'm fairly certain I can solve the problem. Like as the, you know, I'm, um, I've solved a bunch of them and, you know, for, for everyone for, that are best for everyone involved, you know, you would not believe what you get when you are in that position at a large practice, you get lots of stuff. So, yeah. um, but listening is such a key thing there too. I mean, we just don't do enough listening and I'll shut, I'll stop talking now. <laughs> no, that's, we like it when our guests talk. That's really yes. I mean, that's why we brought you here. So okay. okay, but talking on and on about listening just seems incongruous to me. <laughs> True. That's a podcast, so um, that's right. If we stop talking, <laughs> then no one talks, and then we don't have a podcast. <laughs> we don't have, okay, good point. Good well, point. I feel like the, the rabbit hole that, that we can sort of peek into about how this all plays together as well is this, this um, you know, how does vulnerability play into communication and um, decision-making in end-of-life experiences and things like that. We just, we have a, a hospital-based massage uh, peer support group in our uh, online community, and we had a, a meeting this morning with a couple therapists, and, you know, they were talking about how hard it is to watch patients and families in what are clearly, to those of us who have seen this, end-of-life processes, um, go back and forth with DNR and full code, you know, each day that changing because of some subtle shift in, you know, whatever it looks like the person might make it, they're not going to make it. They're dying. Like, um, if their heart stops, it should be allowed to stop. Like they're not in a place where if we resuscitate them today, because their sats are up by a couple percent, they're doing better. Well, and that's where Cal, just not to interrupt you, but that is where Bob's precious time 
really, I think, you know, helps people understand where they are. You are in the precious time. DNR, no DNR, really not the issue here. The issue yeah. is leaning in to the love and the fact that this doesn't go on forever and you've only got one chance, right? You don't get it. You don't, there's no dress rehearsal. Yeah. Um, this is it. This is it. It's real time. And, and you are going, you are going to go on after your person dies and, and you are going to have to live with yourself. Um, and this is, uh, that, you know, that's, that's why I love that. It's one of the reasons that the journal started with, I mean, that was one of the first pages I did. In fact, I was looking at the other day, uh, Corey and discovered all sorts of mistakes. That are in the layers of that. <laughs> I hate that. Um, because it was one of my first ones because yeah. I, I was so determined that was even before I think I knew it was a journal. I was so determined to record a couple of the concepts that Bob used to convey to his patients because now they were on us, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I, th I love that, you know, that that term and explaining what that term means to whether it's a patient or a loved one can really center them for not getting, you know, cause that is, and those are easy. Those are, those rabbit holes present themselves on a daily basis, right? You've got, you've got nurses coming in saying, well, your labs are this like, and so all of a sudden we're focused on the labs when in reality, we're into precious time you know, the labs are kind of immaterial at a certain point. They, they, but we, we get so fixated on what are the readings? What does the lab say? What are, you know, well, do we want a DNR? Do we not want a DNR? Um, yeah. Instead, it's just like, this is it. It, it doesn't go on forever. And I want to be able to look back on this time and say, yeah, I loved thoroughly, um, to the last breath. And my person died knowing he, she, they were loved, yeah. um, all the way up, you know, yeah. no matter how hard it was, that was one of the big things for me was I became, you know, like I said, Bob started out as a surgeon. He was a Baylor trained surgeon. He could be a real jerk. Um, that was part of his training was how to be a real jerk. If you couldn't bring someone to tears without raising your voice in one sentence, then you need to go back and do more training. That's how surgeons work. And so certainly while he wasn't that way by the time I met him in terms of falling in love with him, when he was feeling bad physically, as he got sicker and sicker, he got that way. He could be pretty ugly to me. And I became a much more um, subservient, uh, you know, play nice kind of a gal because I was determined that when the, when the end came and I went on by myself, that I wasn't going to look back and say, Oh my God, why did I engage in that argument that day that, you know, there was one, there was one big argument a few weeks after he was diagnosed and it resulted in the page that says, we're going through two different processes. He is dying. I am surviving. Yeah. And once, once I had that realization, thank goodness we had that argument so early on because I was like, I was like, this is, this is, this is going to be my truth, right? This is what I'm going to live with. And I'd rather spend my time missing him 
than spend my time regretting that I engaged in some silliness. Um, and so, yeah, that's, uh, well, I just did kind of go on about that. No, that, I mean, that's really <laughs> podcast. It's a podcast. It's a podcast. That's right. Well, and I, I'm curious, and it's probably not even a question you can like honestly answer, but I feel like this is the, the thing about the decisions that get made. There are things that Bob certainly knew and that you probably knew from having been with him that like when we were talking this morning with the hospital-based massage therapist, we were talking about how like when, when the physician says, so, you know, your person is having problems eating or there's something happening where we can, we can put in a peg tube and that's the end of the sentence. It's not, but that means that someone will have to decide when to take that peg tube out. And here's why your person is having a hard time with food, or here's why, you know, we could do a trach. Okay. But then somebody has to, and probably you spouse decision maker will have to say, okay, like now I feel like I'm giving up as opposed to allowing something to happen that is very natural. And that vulnerability is what I think allows a provider to say, I don't have the answer you want, but I'm going to give you all of the information so that you can make an informed choice. And I think that when the nurse comes in with the labs, someone else quickly comes in and says, here's what we do to fix it. And the family goes, they wouldn't be telling me we could fix it if it wasn't worth fixing, right? So of course I would want to do that. And there's just not that, that. Well, and yes, there's not that typically, but I also have a, um, I don't know where it is. Oh, here it is. Um, This is a little lapel pin that I designed that says PC at diagnosis. And that stands for palliative care at diagnosis that if you pull the palliative care team into the process, ideally early, but certainly by the point that you're describing, palliative care is willing, unlike a lot of other specialists, palliative care is willing to have those conversations about what are the goals of this precious time? What, you know, here's where we're headed. And, and it's not, you don't only go to palliative care when you're dying. Um, but if you establish a relationship with them early on, that can be just such, it's a, you know, it's an interdisciplinary team. They have all kinds of perspectives, right? The social worker, the chaplain, the advanced practice nurse, and then of course the physician. But a lot of times when you're talking about these kind of things, it's so much easier to talk to the chaplain or the social worker than the doctor. Um, and so that way, and, and yet the way it's the way palliative care works, they are all pretty much equal members of the team. And so the doctor listens when the social worker says, Ooh, but I was in there today and here's what, here's what they're concerned about. Right. And then that allow, okay, we'll have a family meeting and we'll talk about goals of care and we'll talk about how, how do, you know, how do we want this to go? Not just here are the labs and here's what we do about it. You know, is that, is what you're, what you're deciding to do in line with the goals of care. And if you want to change the goals, that's okay too. Um, yeah, but you, but you, uh, but yes, I, I think palliative care is an untapped asset. Um, one of the saddest, I read a, a 
post today, I can't remember whose it was, about a, a woman uh, out in South Africa who, who said, I wish I'd known about palliative care when my sister was still alive. I mean, to yeah. me, I wish I'd known palliative care or I've gotten that about my book. I wish I'd had your book when my person was still alive. Those are the sad, those are the moments where I just want to cry because, because these resources are available. Um, and we just have to continue to get better about openly talking about the fact that at the end of life comes death period. I mean, just, yeah, there's no, no matter how we manage it. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. I I, I think you just said without saying that most of the care we need isn't medical at no, that time. No, and, it's not. And that's what's beautiful about the palliative model when it really is practiced the way it was envisioned, that the physician is not the head of the team. They are one member of a multi-person team that are attending to, I mean, I feel like the whole person is this phrase that gets tossed around, but um, that when you are in that end of life process, medicine for the most part, isn't what you need. You need all the other psychosocial, you know, you need people to show up to what's happening for you and to be willing to let you change your goals. I mean, I don't even want to say let you change your goals to just be able to go with you as you're like, Oh, this goal, I don't know, a week ago, this seemed like a make or break goal, but today actually I'm willing to wiggle on that a little bit. And <laughs> right. Yeah, this, it's, it's, it's funny that you, that you bring this up because one of the other bits of advice that that was big in our in our situation, but interestingly enough, um, I learned years before I met Bob when I was working in hematology oncology at a medical center with a physician and um, lung cancer specialist, and he would say to his patients at every visit, "We hope." for the best and we prepare for the worst. And it's an and, not an or. And I can tell you as a person who, em- who employed this wisdom throughout right my time with Bob while he was sick, one is um, the best and the worst change over time, right? At first, the best was going to be a targeted therapy that was going to knock out his particular cancer. And, you know, we weren't, we weren't going to have, he wasn't going to die of that cancer um, at this point in his life. Um, uh, That was the, that was the first um, hope for the best. And when that was very quickly determined that that wasn't going to happen, well, then the best was like, let's get in a trip. Let's, you know, let's do some stuff where we can make some memories and enjoy ourselves. What are the priorities? And the worst was pain and suffering and, and each, you know, as, as time went on, those, those lit, those definitions of best and worst were altered and changed. You know, for me, the worst was getting in stupid arguments. Um, so I figured out how to not do that, but that, and that really is, um, that is something that I think is, if you, if you use that like again, simple language that we all understand hoping and preparing Those are words that we all understand and we can decide, you know, what's the best and what's the worst. But if we're checking in on that topic, okay, where are you on the hoping today and where are you on the preparing? Um, I think we do a real service to families and patients if we introduce that language early on and then, and then 
bring it back up again, bring it back up again. Um, and don't, there's a, that's actually in my book twice um, because it was such a big part of our, of our experience. And the second time I put it in the book was, was the other thing is, and I think practitioners of all sorts need to keep this in mind too, but okay to introduce it, especially I would say massage therapists. I love the idea of, hey, where are you on hope today? And where are you on preparation today? And then recognizing that some days, I, I'm not gonna answer that question. I just need you, right, to touch me and make me feel better physically. And But the question, the fact that it was planted, I think is, is wisdom right there. I think that that's doing a real service to people that, that lets them know it doesn't go on forever. It just doesn't go on forever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. knowing again that there are many many more things we could talk about are there are is there anything you didn't get to say or things that you want to we're going to totally sell the crap out of your book but um what uh what do you want our listeners to know that you didn't mention or do you want to encapsulate anything oh, wow that's a tough one um I guess if I were, if I were gonna, you know, sort of make a last uh, plug for anything, it would be for the caregiver. Um, It would be for the fact that behind every patient, there is someone who is doing everything in their power um, to keep that person alive. even though they don't know half the time, they don't know what they're doing. I mean, I have this little, this little meme thing that I, that I put out there periodically to physicians that says, you know, imagine um, the anxiety and the fatigue of in-house call during your PGY one year, that's your postgraduate first year, first year of residency internship, right? And you go to the on-call room every time you go to go to sleep, they, they, they paid you and you get to the point I've heard this from many physicians. You get to the point where you're like, okay, there's a camera in here. And every time I set my head down on that pillow, they're going to pay, right? Like there's this whole thing, any surgeon, any, any physician will tell you that in the first few months of their intern year, they felt that way. Take all that anxiety and fatigue, but you have no four years of medical training. Mm -mm. You have one patient And when you lose that patient, your entire world collapses and you don't know what you're doing. I mean, it is, and there's no 80 hour work week like Mm -hmm. there is for residents. No, 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 no. no. Forget the ACGME. That doesn't exist, right? It's 24 seven, 365 days. And the moment that you think, I don't know how much longer I can do this. You realize, oh, but when I'm not doing this, my person has died. Yeah. It is, it is both the most difficult thing you'll ever do and the most fulfilling thing you'll ever do. And probably four out of five of us will do it, right? Because four out of five of us will die following an illness rather than an, you know, a sudden death or an accident or something like that. So we'll do it. Um, And a bunch of people, you kind of look to your left and you look to your right and a bunch of people are doing it right now. Yeah. Um, And, um, and so, yeah, my last, my last plug is, is for the caregivers, for the family caregivers, because, um, 
because I love them and I want to support them in any way that I can. Corey, anything you didn't get to ask? Well, so many things, but I was gonna say, that's not even a fair question for you, but yeah, don't do that. Yeah. Um, any last words of wisdom? Uh, no wisdom here for me today. <laughs> Just lots of appreciation. Indeed. Actually, yeah. no, I take that back. Go make art. Oh yeah. Go make art for sure. Yes, just, everyone. Just do it. No and one has to see do it. it. That's a great, you know what? That's art it. If I say it's art. That's right. That's correct. Yes. Um, Awesome. Well, people go buy this book, go directly to it's at Alia publisher. Is that how they say it? At Alia press is, Alia the, press. is the website. And if you order directly from them, um, your book will be signed oh, um, see? on the last page. On the la I sign on the last page. A lot of folks look at the first page and don't, don't think they got a signed book, but I sign on the last page. And if you order directly from, from at Alia press, oh um those books were are all signed and then you'll also have you won't have it on your conscience that you gave your money to amazon so woo -woo! that's right that's <laughs> right so buy that book directly buy it for your friends your loved ones somebody's gonna die soon if they're not dying now you will need it and really even if you're not dying and nobody around you is dying it just read it because it just will be like oh right here's all the things that i could be paying attention to well, I, you know, can I just slip in that the feedback that I get from people is this book helped me be a better friend. And, and for that reason alone, I think it's totally, totally worth it. Totally worth it. And don't worry, because the other feedback I get is, I'm afraid if I give your book to somebody because of the title, Hospice Doctor's Widow, spoiler alert, he died. <laughs> um, <laughs> I get the comment, you know, I'm afraid if I give that book, then I'm telling, I'm telling this person that their loved one is dying and they know they they're well, that's my first response is, well, the truth is deep down, they know, but my second thing is wrap it, say, take a look at this. When you have a minute to yourself, mm -hmm. it is one woman's story. That's all it is. It is one woman's story. And that way they can say, Oh yeah, that's how she did it. I'll never do it that way. But more than likely they're going to say, oh, someone else felt this way. Someone else almost killed their husband while they were taking care of him. I just felt like I wanted to kill him a couple of times, but I didn't, I did not take any action on it. <laughs> well, and I, I think when you give a gift like that, the other gift you're giving is that someone else knows that your person is dying. And when you're, in that place yes. where you're trying to pretend it isn't happening, it can be a huge gift to be like, oh, this other person is aware of what's happening for me. And yes. so, yeah. Oh, well, thanks for being with us, Jen. And uh, go buy the book, people. And um, go check out the Healwell community, learn about boundaries. What's next month, Corey? Um, language and communication. Oh, so fun. See, we know how to party in the community. So get in there, learn the things, feel the discomfort, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Thank you. Interdisciplinary is produced by Healwell. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. New episodes are available weekly through your favorite podcast outlet. Uh, and you can send us an email at podcast at healwell.org. That's podcast at healwell.org. Thanks for listening.